This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. Welcome back for our discussion on Episode 4 of Penny Dreadful, Season 1, Demi Monde. Welcome back, Penny Faithful, to our discussions about Penny Dreadful Season 1, Episode 4, Demi Mond. I'm one of your hosts, Derek, and I'm here with my dreadful co-hosts. Why, thank you, sir. Yes, <laughs> uh, I am here at one of your other hosts, John. And I am here. My name is Ray, and uh, I'm looking forward to this Episode 4, Demi Mond. Excellent, excellent. Sorry for calling you guys uh, dreadful co-hosts. <laughs> That's but, fine. Hey, look, it works. You're a dreadful co-host. I am also a dreadful co-host. Let's get all dreadful. (laughs) Exactly. Let's get straight into our discussion about episode four, Demi Monde. Uh, Once again, directed by Dervla Walsh and written by showrunner John Logan. Once again, I like how they're keeping the uh, group together on this show. You know, it seems like a a show that is born out of one person's um, vision, I suppose. So nice to have the same kind of people involved in each of the episodes. Yeah, maybe they'll become like the Rolling Stones, where in 90 years' time, it will be Dervla and John Logan <laughs> still doing TV together. Mm-hmm. Well, we, yeah. we will find out in a couple of months' time when uh, when Penny Dreadful City of Angels mm. comes out in April. We'll find yeah. out whether Dervla's back involved in that Exactly. Show. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for this episode of Penny Dreadful? Sure. Frankenstein consults a hematologist, Professor Abraham Van Helsing, who finds the blood contains a unique property that prevents complete coagulation. Mm -hmm. He believes it assists in the eating of blood. Frankenstein begins experimenting on Fenton, the vampire they caught and are keeping in chains. Frankenstein is also having to deal with his creature who wants him to create a female companion for him. Chandler takes Broner to the Grand Guignol Theatre, Gray is there, as is Vanessa, but it's Chandler he is interested in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another great episode here. I'm, I'm, you know, One of the things that I love in supernatural stories is vampires. It's one of the things I've always loved reading stories about. And what I always love is when they get to the point of explaining their version of vampires, because vampires have, have some very basic ties between them over the years and um, some very basic ideas they eat blood basically is the is the idea that keeps them alive some people have explained why it keeps them alive um i'm a massive fan of of Anne rice's uh, vampire novels so uh, her exploration through history with vampires is always really good i'm also a massive fan of buffy the vampire slayer so i love their version of vampires as well and what i love in this show is i love that they've come up with a scientific method to explain why vampires are being kept alive uh, eating blood i think that's a that's a really interesting concept that's come into this episode yeah it's um another little tick in the box for a reference to um to bram Stoker's dracula with van helsing um mm-hmm. and i like how because dracula is for you know for all intents one of the biggest classical monsters there is and and mm-hmm. he yeah. takes a peripheral kind of position in this this whole story penny dreadful and i love how they just kind of skirt around um dracula like we we had fenton um calling calling out to his master in the previous episodes and now we've got van Mm -hmm. helsing who's 
the vampire hunter knowing all this stuff about vampires and i love how like we don't just we don't touch upon dracula himself you know because yeah, yeah. i think in some ways i don't know it might cheapen cheapen it by having him yeah. just out there makes him such a, a bigger like a force yeah um and yeah. and so yeah no it's um yeah so definitely i'm happy to happy to see van helsing and i love this explanation about vampires as well yeah, I, I do like that moment with uh, Van Helsing where, uh, again, you don't get much of the explanation of who he is. You know who he is just peripherally because you know about the stories of Dracula. And I love that moment where you have Victor Frankenstein going, um, you must have a lot of knowledge about blood being a hematologist. And he just goes intimately. And that's the only little allusion that you get to who this person is and how, how involved he has been in this exploration over the years. So quite cool. Yeah, and it, even just that he says about Malcolm, he doesn't know what he seeks as well, you know, mm -hmm. in, yes. in, in that sense, uh, which is, is really good. I, I do like um, the fact that his method for discovering um, the stain that reveals the anticoagulant properties is called Hannah's Wink. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that was quite cute um, uh, of him, for sure. It's his wife, Hannah. Yes. Yeah. Although I don't really know too much about Van Helsing, mm -hmm. other than he is a vampire hunter, uh, and that Wolverine did play him <laughs> in, in a movie um, as well, which again I quite liked, even though I don't think it was that great. But no, um, really anyway, was. enough of my cinematic tastes, which are pretty poor. <laughs> um, and well, so you've seen great movies and you loved great movies, but you've also seen terrible movies and loved terrible movies. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's not, it's not. Exactly. It's just don't focus on all the terrible movies because uh, it will make it sound bad uh, let's get into our big moments from episode four once again john do you want to kick us off with the biggest moment from the episode <laughs> well yes exactly the pleasures of the flesh dorian gray's orgy um and uh and more of course because um i do like the fact that we get to glimpse behind the portrait into his hidden kind of little area as well with the hidden painting, mm. uh, which we all kind of know, but we don't see, we don't see what's on it. We don't get to glimpse into the hideousness potentially that could be his aging portrait. Uh, but we certainly see that he's sat there looking at maybe a truer reflection of himself. Yeah. Um, after his, his huge uh, orgy. Um, and I, I think it, it comes very much, it helps with the character here. You know, uh, he meets uh, Vanessa at the botanical gardens and talks about the deceptiveness of plants, this idea of beauty to entrap you mm -hmm. um, and the, the deadliness, even though I've written in my notes deadlines for some reason. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> and the deadliness of these beautiful plants with their mm -hmm. flowers and um, you know he he talks about the permanence of art the music being ephemeral uh, and you know it, it it's one of those things i think were um you know even though he is bored with things as we've been talking about before and he must move on to the next new thing within himself he's trying to keep within a certain moment of himself uh by uh, you know keeping his physical appearance youthful. He doesn't want to move on from that. Mm -hmm. um, yet with everything else, he wants the next best thing. The yeah. next, the, the, And I, I really like that kind of dichotomy at the heart of Dorian Gray. Mm -hmm. um, th this need for the new, the excessive, the more, and yet within himself, he's wanting to freeze time mm -hmm. uh, to keep that 
beautiful appearance. Yeah. Um, but he also realizes that's the key to, I suppose, the the locks that are put in in place for him. This is the mm. the thing he must keep going. Yes, is this ability he has to enter any room and get whatever he wants. You know that that's this kind of realization. Um, John mentioned back when we discussed episode three that I called him a hipster. This is the episode where I called him a, hi- a hipster because he has that <laughs> moment where he goes. Oh, all that music. I know every groove of every single <laughs> cylinder. Oh, can nobody make anything new anymore? It just sounds like every hipster I've ever met. So. But he does have that moment, except for one. And mm-hmm. I suppose this leads to my uh, ultimate point, And that is um, sort of him and Ethan Chandler uh Running, well, I don't think they do run. They walk fast through, you know, in his hall that is adorned with all the pictures. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. This is just a personal, uh, Mm -hmm. moment of sheer joy, uh, from this episode where, you know, with the Liebstad or or love death of Tristan and Isolde playing, uh, from Wagner, um, after the theater and, and the, the, less than happy ending with Broner, mm. the the blood sports, the fight being dumped high as a kite, probably on absinthe and Dorian Gray's uh, excessive amount of cologne mm-hmm. that he has. Um that effectively they have a good old fashioned makeout um with with all this going on. So I, I really like that. And of course with it is ultimately that Wagner's love death just playing in the background is awesome because mm-hmm. it is that piece of music that at the time the th- the you know Wagner introduced these the, the themes in a sense it, it is the idea that you hear the waves crashing uh, on on the beach here in terms of the drum rolls and and the violins and he's very much sort of brought a very thematic approach i think to music um in this time compared to baroque and 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 all this from previous so it it's this modern thing it's this new thing that again dorian's connecting on and i like when all these different memories play through um through ethan's head as Mm -hmm. well because there is one with the the actress from the the grand guignol theater where she's just been attacked by uh the beast and there's blood spurting out, but she's reclining it. She looks like that grand operatic singer, sort of doing the high pitch, the mm-hmm. long note, but she's out. got blood just pumping out mm-hmm. of her. Um, as Caliban below is kind of utilizing the, the pump to, to, um, this visual effect in, in the theater. And I, I love that. I just thought it was, um, really, it was just such, purely a emotional scene i thought yeah. uh, and i love everything just worked in harmony for me in terms of the flashbacks the music um and obviously dorian gray and ethan chandler getting it on <laughs> i've got to i've got to jump in there john with um and it makes me smile with how you're describing um it and making you feel like seeing the images and the music as well, because I see a direct correlation between the, the images and the actual musicality of, of Wagner and, mm. and Liebstod. So, um, just a really quick crash, crash course, class 101 of, mm. of Wagner, Liebstod <laughs> as well. Uh, the way he wrote it, um, he was heavily into chromaticism, which had no, um, kind mm. of no home key, no major and minor for those that do know music. And, mm-hmm. 
Liebstold was famous for being like very erotic music because what he would do yeah. would be that he would leave um, chords unresolved. So you get this mm. moment of tension and he creates tension by doing that. Um, and so he'd never come down to any particular home key. He'd just leave it hanging up there. And what we see right. with the images of Ethan Chandler with him, um, you know, just reflecting on all these things that have happened, it's, it's almost like a build up for him as well. Mm-hmm. And it just culminates at the end. And there's this, um, moment in the music where it, everything kind of explodes kind of figuratively. Yeah. And it, and it, mm-hmm. to him, he become, he gets this realization as well. And that's when he kind of goes up to Dorian Gray, grabs him round the neck. And then he just, mm-hmm. you know, they just make out. And, and I think I, I loved that scene because it was so, I thought, well thought out with the music. Yeah. Um, it Definitely. was so appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah. It was really good. Absolutely. And I, and I think they use even the, the simple fact of it being uh, love and death, you know, the, the fact that these aren't just sensual images that are going on and being uh, cultivated by the music in Ethan's mind. Mm. It is the violence that's gone on. You know, we get another glimpse of some of the murders that have taken place that are flashing in Ethan's mind, Mm. something that hasn't actually been connected in the show so far, but Ethan is having flashes of the murders that have happened in previous episodes. He's seeing the blood, he's seeing the death. He's also seeing the love of Brona. He's also seeing some situations that may, uh, may have pointed towards love. Um, so I love, I, I really do like how that's all put together as, yeah. the, as the two of them couple. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating, really well put together. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it's really good. I think, um, I, I remember first hearing, um, the love death and I was just like, it was nothing I'd ever heard before. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really incredible. And just the, how, how it sort of conjures up, um, sort of images in a sense. I think the only other kind of, composer i've had that with probably is sibelius and um, the finnish composer and um, he has a violin concerto and it just you get the sense of the forests of finland from it it's really incredible right. and i think here um this this sort of um tragic hopeless love um that is kind of brought out in the love death of Tristan and Isolde, mm-hmm. you know, Romeo and Juliet, whatever it might be. Um, and in a sense, Ethan has just had that with Brona. And so it connects back to that. I won't go into too much because I do know that that's possibly someone else's ma- big moment <laughs> of the episode. Um, so yeah, it's really good, but I love, yeah, the way the music's done. I think you even just feel that with the um the composer for the series as well yes. how he he you know because dorian gray's kind of theme is really nice in this as is victor's as is the overall theme it, it's 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 really nicely absolutely. done absolutely he knows his music and and also as well i mean tristan in his older i think was written around the 1860s as well so that puts it right close uh, quite recent so when dorian yeah, yeah. um yeah. thinks about it and it's in his collection of cylinders uh it's relatively mm-hmm. new music um then yeah so, yeah yeah absolutely especially especially i suppose created in cylinders for bringing home to your own house rather than having to go out to theater to to see it he can take it home and play it at home so mm-hmm. uh, yeah that would have been definitely relatively new what, what what's the term for people that sort of adopt the new technology because he you know he's with the photographs mm-hmm. uh, and now and the gramophone uh, he's an is uh, an early adopter there you go. Yeah. shall we say yeah. he'd be an apple um, fan nowadays. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i am starting to feel a little bit like brona in this conversation um you guys 
surprised with your pretty words about classical music that I know nothing <laughs> about. Uh, let's let's move on to the second big point for the episode, Ray. Yeah, um, for me, the big moment for this episode <clears throat> was all the characters going to to the theatre and watching, um, kind of through. Um, the eyes of Brona and Ethan. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just loved how she was so excited about it. But at the same moment, yep. it just filled me with dread because when someone's that happy and, and everything's so good, something's got to uh-huh. happen. Um, Absolutely. And, and we do see it happen later on. But um, I, I thought this was very cool because you do, you get to see Caliban working earnestly behind the scenes, um, you know, just he's just doing his job. Uh, and then slowly Dorian Gray's up there. you got Vanessa, uh, Ethan and, and Brona are there, of course. And Samembe is there, apparently. Um, they make mention of that yeah. as well. So mm-hmm. so you have n- nearly the whole cast there. And I found that yeah. just as a, I don't know, just as a pinch point for the series and the ensemble to come together in one scene mm-hmm. uh, was quite memorable. Uh, but also, yeah. as well, the... Um, Again, another little hint there with the performance on stage with a full mm-hmm. moon and the werewolf. Um, things are coming. So, uh, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, very interesting. Uh, you're expecting a little nudge from Ethan going, do you like the story? Is this <laughs> yeah, a story exactly. that you really enjoy, Brian? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, really good. Yeah, I, I love the excitement of Billy Piper when she's watching this play. It's it's fascinating because, you know, she's she is a hard person. You know, it, it's something that we've that we've said uh, earlier on in the earlier episode. She's a hard character. She doesn't let much penetrate her, her skin or at least tries not to or at least tries not to show it. Whereas here it's moments of pure joy where mm. she's not realizing, you know, the kind of effects that are they're putting on stage in front of her. You know, the things that she can't possibly fathom how they were created because the first time she's ever seen it being done. To be absolutely honest, we're over 140 years since this would have taken place. And if I went to a theater and saw this amount of work being put into the production, mm. I'd be pretty satisfied with that night out, right? For, for 20 or 30 quid. That's, yeah, that seems like a, a really good night out. You know? Yeah. Healthy snacks, a nice orange. orange and, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And just the amount of blood that's being used, um, by, uh, mm. by, uh, Caliban when he's below stage just consistently pumping that blood over the uh, over the body of of the the murdered girl um for what seems like about 10 minutes after the play yeah. is finished yeah <laughs> I, I, I that I really I love seeing Caliban working all the different things from mm. the blood pump to the the um false doors on the stage yeah. um there was that moment where it was you know rubbing your stomach patting your head kind of thing where he's working too, going in opposite directions mm-hmm. um i think i'd have a bit too much pressure on that i'd probably send keep the werewolf down and the guy or i'd be like mm-hmm. all over the place but i i really liked um seeing all the stage handwork behind i thought it was really really cool yeah isn't, isn't there even that moment from when vincent arrives back down um after doing his moment on stage and he's like oh this play is so bad on my knees <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> as he's running up and down off stage i loved it because you actually you did see joy in caliban as well well i, I remember while he's pumping yeah. the blood he's just having the time of his life and um yeah, yeah. so you do see another side of him um or- and vincent's having a drink as well isn't he as well I think so. they're kind of yeah. laughing away yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. really good there's, um, there's one little blink and you'll miss it moment with the uh actor who plays the werewolf um i don't whether you guys saw it as he sees Caliban working uh, oh, yes. his magic backstage mm-hmm. um 
before he puts on his mask, revealing he's the monster going on stage, there's a look that he gives to Caliban as if you don't belong here. Mm. Um, it, it's a really interesting, tiny little moment from an extra that really plays into this character of Caliban, where he, he knows not everybody is as welcoming to him as Vincent is about the theatre. There are some people that don't like having someone like him around. So uh, I did like that little tiny touch that was in there. Yeah, just a little reminder that, you know, mm. his world isn't perfect and uh, he's still exactly. got this massive kind of, um, you know, weight on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. uh, and another great skill from the showrunners you mentioned, uh, Ray, about having this amount of the cast in one location. Um, mm -hmm. But I kind of like that not all of them interact with each other and not all of them need to. Yeah. And if they do, it's only a very small conversation. It's not something massively important to the storyline that every one of these characters have to be in this location. It's not like a, a, a big ticking clock, yeah. um, a big bomb going off or something like that. You know, uh, Samembe seems to be there just specifically because Vanessa is there and he needs to protect her. He mm. has that, that feeling that he needs to make sure that she's safe. Um, but he doesn't get any moment where he says that or doesn't get any moment where anybody's told that. He's just simply uh, seen on screen for a quick moment as the camera passes by where he's standing, but he's constantly watching over her rather than the play. So um, so some just really interesting moments. And I mentioned it already, my favorite moment with Brona, because there are moments in all of our lives when we're surrounded by people who either know each other or have a certain way of talking. And Brona just looks at them all and goes, oh, you all with your fancy words, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> because she kind of realizes that no matter how much Ethan loves and respects her, no matter how much he wants to be with her, she will never fit into their world, or at least the her perceived version of their world. She'll never have a place there. Uh, so she walks away from that table before even getting an invite. There's a lot of weight with that scene as well. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Not only just that awkwardness of Broner and Mark, the others, but the relationships between them all. I mean, they're all intermingled and that just kind of actually mm -hmm. made it even worse for Brona. And I think that's probably what had set her off, um, to, to trigger off her insecurities, um, especially from her interaction with Dorian and her current interaction with Ethan. And, uh, mm -hmm. and as I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, it kind of goes pear shaped and she, kind of self-destructs in that she pushes Ethan yeah. away um, because she feels, I guess, filthy at having bumped into mm -hmm. Dodorian and then actually having seen Ethan interact with Vanessa, who's from high society. Yeah, um, yeah very yeah, interesting exactly. scene. It, yeah. it, it's kind of like she has a reactive epiphany, mm. ultimately, mm. Um, that this, this sense of being out of place, you know, um, uh, an an immigrant in the big smoke in London, um, the fine words, uh, the different subject matter and, and that idea of her, her feeling inadequate. But mm -hmm. then with the consumption, even she knows that she is about to die. Well, yeah. Um, that she is realizing as, dare I say it, the, the allegory for Isolde that there is a, a death here, even though she loves him. And for her, it is to kind of break that up. She doesn't want that, yeah. that thing. So it, it, it's really, yeah, it's, it's a great little scene between all those. I, I think Absolutely. it's uh, really clever. Absolutely. And just, you know, that moment of meeting the person that just treated her as something that is destined to die. Mm. Um, despite, you know, Ethan's assertion that he will spend every moment with her until that happens. She has just met that character that has treated her as um, the only thing important about you or the only thing interesting about you is that you're almost dead. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really great moment, but a really hard uh, moment with, with Brona. So maybe next episode she'll have a nice moment <laughs> that doesn't, isn't punctuated by, uh, by death and horror. 
Probably not, though, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, my big moment about the episode, I really just wanted to talk about some some big story beat that happens connected with Fenton. We talked a lot about Fenton last episode, so I'm not going to go into him too much. Um, but I kind of like this idea that the group of Malcolm and Simbene, uh, Victor and Ethan, are trying to treat Fenton to take away his vampiric ways mm. uh, using the basis of the investigation that's been done by Van Helsing. Um, and just that turn in him as Vanessa arrives with uh, thinking that he's cured, you know, it's just this kid sitting on the floor and she tries to roll him <laughs> an apple across the dirty floor. Yeah. Not very nice of her, but uh, what his response to her going, oh, I just want bats and rats and blood, you whore, to, to this character that he thinks is trying to help him out, you know. Um, and, Victor's, the... and Victor's response to him just going, yeah. oh, well, it's a process. He's not expected to be cured immediately, is he, you know. Yeah. Uh, really interesting that they, that they do this because this is the central part that we learn as the episode goes on. Sir Malcolm does now believe potentially that Mina has been taken and has been turned into a vampire like Fenton. Uh, doesn't allow him to show... Um, much restraint in his treatment of Fenton, but he is definitely going to use Fenton to experiment on to see potentially if he gets Mina back, he may have to cure her. So why not use this street urchin that he has no caring about um, to try and test these methods before he gets Mina back? Definitely. I mean, I love, um, I, I love Malcolm's kind of when he says his chatter is becoming wearisome and, um, <laughs> and just his face. Um, yeah, yeah. because he's obsessed about Vanessa, you know, where's Vanessa? He does have a, a good line directed at, uh, at Malcolm as well, whether I can say it on the podcast, but he goes, F you all, especially you. And he says, tough wanker, uh, <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to, um, to Malcolm Sorry. Murray. And I do, uh, like, uh, that expression indeed. Um, and instead of a posh wanker i suppose but it just it's really nicely done um but of course he does um do his master's bidding as well uh you know which is uh, a nice point exactly exactly (laughs) before you take it (laughs) (laughs) with fenton as well one of the other things i like in this episode is you kind of got that thinking i suppose that maybe they were trying to set it up that he may have been going mad and seeing his master in front of him but i kind of like the reveal that he was actually seeing his master his master has infiltrated sir malcolm's home uh, easily you know it's not this old thing of having to be invited in through the door to break in through your enemy's house which always seemed like a bit of a uh, story protection for the characters it never feel, felt like a real thing that you could say a monster can't be invited inside your home and then you're protected yeah. uh, sorry love you've got windows you might leave one open um, so I do love this moment as Fenton sees his master in front of him and then bites through his own wrists to get out of his binds so he can follow his master to Vanessa's room where they think Vanessa might be because she hasn't come on, uh, to visit Fenton so um, so these moments of 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 the reveal that the master is inside the home. And I think you mentioned it actually last episode, John, um, this is the real reveal that the master is after Vanessa, not after Mina. He's already has Mina and Mina is now just the conduit and the way to get to Vanessa. Yeah. Um, it's quite a, quite a big moment really that not only is it revealed to us, the audience, but it's also revealed to us that Malcolm knew that Malcolm knew that potentially Mina was just being used to get Vanessa out of hiding and actually, Malcolm's probably likely to hand over Vanessa in exchange for Mina. It's it's quite a big, uh, yeah. quite a big thing for these characters who we think are quite associated with each other. Yeah, it's an important thought. I mean, they they have a um, a very strange relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that one bit. Uh, I can't believe if it is in this episode as well, where Malcolm says to Vanessa, 
um, you're the the nasty and cruel daughter that I should have had. That I <laughs> yeah. deserved. You exactly. know, um, yeah. and it was, yeah, and so they both kind of um, go at each other with, um, I mean, Mina is the central point for them as well, but knowing mm-hmm. now that um, Sir Malcolm kind of knows the end game for Vanessa makes him out to be a little bit more sinister than we originally think, you know? I mean, he's not perfect, yeah. but, um, mm-hmm. but this is just even, even worse, you know? So. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we also find out a bit more about his view of Ethan Chandler as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is that nice moment, um, where Malcolm is also suggesting that Victor is kind of, the son that he he would want you know this idea that he would peel away the skin to uh, to look inside as we saw from episode one when he he gives him the vampire cadaver um and he goes you know mr chandler is a a finger on the trigger you are not um you know that's a an interesting uh point of view as well mm-hmm. um i think just bringing it back to to fenton as well two things uh i really like after um he obviously disregards the the apple um you you have malcolm and and victor talking about going to the butcher going to the slaughterhouse um going to the um the funeral home to get stuff and and uh samembe comes through with um a a poor black cat which Mm -hmm. is like click um so we obviously owning a black cat had to hide our cat uh from this uh visual upsetment mm, yes. <laughs> um it was just like oh okay he just did that because it didn't look like a dummy um it looked like there was a real cat yeah, and then it was like it was well done yeah, yeah so our, our cat was traumatized uh, <laughs> for a while we are assured that no cats were harmed yeah. in the making of this episode our then. podcast <laughs> yes our poor podcast Charlie. um but uh I, I thought oh okay but it was just a nice light-hearted well can i say that i don't know probably not um it it was a nice not nice even it was just (laughs) that shocking moment i suppose um but it had a dark humor uh to it um i i liked how fenton as well was felt like an insect crawling up the stairs behind Mm. victor Mm. and uh malcolm uh, just just as uh, they they go to investigate the the bumps uh, and noises from Vanessa's bedroom, uh, yeah. which was good. Um, yeah, I think um, also as well the appearance of the master in in the bedroom was quite effective because uh, we hadn't seen the creature like that since episode one, um, and yeah. you know for all intents we've 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 seen not that many monsters around so when you do see mm-hmm. it in the in the room like in their abode uh yeah it was quite it was quite effective yeah i love the design of the character there's a um there's a character in the lord of the rings uh the voice of sauron who has the similar style of uh of look about him where the lips are slit open so it reveals mm. more of the teeth than yeah. are humanly possible to reveal and so this moment obviously the the, the vampiric characters people that that suck blood teeth are massively important to those characters so this design of him being able to pull back his lips almost five ways to show to expose his teeth is just a, such a terrifying design by uh, by the the showrunners so I, I really like it so i'm excited to see more of him but I, I do love that he has that moment as he's being approached by sir malcolm and by uh, victor that he 
takes a quick glance at the crucifix on the wall as well. So a little illusion that, yes. that maybe the crucifix is protecting uh, people uh, the way it's said to. Um, so uh, lovely touches in this episode. And I, I really do like the reveal that not all is as it seems. Yeah. And Vanessa is also being used by Sir Malcolm, who will do anything. He'll burn down the world if he gets his daughter back. So um, mm. yeah, nice little points. Uh, yeah. Any other notes about this episode as we uh, as we close out our discussion on episode four? Um, the only one I have, and it's uh, Fenton's final word, uh, which is mother. Mm. Uh, as, again, it, that kind of awful kind of idea or notion that you get in your head when you see him fall back towards the smash mirror and you just realize that the 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 central bit of woodwork that's turned into a stake has just gone through the back of his head Mm. but his final word is mother and i like that reflection because he uses it in episode three as well he Mm -hmm. he suddenly sort of becomes distracted and starts talk as though he's talking with his mother and and i like the reflection of it that as well it's almost like that in the same way that he uses master, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, you know, very cl- similarly kind of related, uh, but you know, does he see his current master just jump through the, the window as a mother figure? Is it kind of that kind of idea or was his mother pure evil and more of a master? Um, but it's just that that last kind of idea and moment through his, his head is a, in relation to his mother and how does that connect or does it even with the master i don't know but i I just kind of like that um element to it interesting isn't it because the way i was seeing it was that potentially master is the father figure in his life and vanessa possibly is the mother figure that he's striving to bring back for his master almost the bride of dracula i guess i actually thought it a third different option there (laughs) um i thought that um similar to you derek um the master is is the father figure. The mother is this other mm-hmm. figure, um, because yeah. uh, Fenton says, "Mother, why does everyone want her?" And I'm assuming they're mm. um, referring to Vanessa. So this right. is like Mother Evil. I, I don't know what she. And it could yeah. be allusion towards um, you know season two later on. Mm, maybe, um, maybe, yeah. But it was it was very interesting, interesting scripts. Or it potentially could be an allusion to Amon Ra and Amanes. Um, the the two joined as one. Absolutely. So maybe maybe master is Amon Ra and, and mother is Amon That's it. Potentially the hidden ones, and they are hidden. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one just one point I wanted to raise. I thought was really cool at the end. Uh, in that um underground dog fight or whatever it is <laughs> yeah um i found the really cool parallel there between flash jack um, decimating the rats and ethan oh yes uh yeah and then ethan um mm-hmm. being approached by those other gentlemen and so you have these two mm-hmm. fights happening in parallel and again a little tidbit there towards the the um the dogs and um you know wolfish nature uh, and ethan Absolutely. um entering that fight as well so yeah i, I like the two yeah yeah, yeah i did and, and a primer for what's to come it's got the adrenaline going you know yeah I, I do kind of wish that ethan had taken out those uh foppish i did as well gentlemen, yeah me like, too like uh like the dog took out the rats um because they are the rats of british society that idea of <laughs> 
you're not even welcome here, America. Yeah. We do things the way we want to do them, and you don't even know what that is. Uh, and then they start beating on him yeah. and piling on him. Um, so, yeah, I, I love the scene. And really, once again, the production and the and the editing of that scene mm. as you see what the fighting is doing to Ethan. And the only reason they're there is, once again, you know, we, we find out from Dorian Gray this is a thing he used to go to that excited him. And it doesn't excite him anymore because once you get used to these things, mm. ah, Nothing exciting about it. Off I go again. So yeah. another disaffected youth in, in Dorian Gray. Um, quickly, just one quick note, because uh, I didn't mention it last episode when we had the non-reveal of the painting of Dorian Gray. Um, I'm a little disappointed that we don't see what Dorian Gray looks like at potentially 100 or 500 years old, whatever he is, because I think I want to see how disgusting looking and how the actual uh, version of of Dorian Gray will will be on the painting because he seems like he's gone through everything. He seems like he's already experienced everything in life, every debauched uh, thing you can possibly imagine. So what would that painting actually look like if we saw the toll it was taking on his real body? Um, I'm just really intrigued. So maybe it's enough to have it just being shown in the background and the fact that Dorian's quite fascinated by it but now it makes me want to have the camera just go around the other side and see that painting. Yeah. Oh yeah, I definitely want to see it. Mm. Definitely. Let's leave it there for our discussion on episode four of Penny Dreadful. Uh, overall, guys, what did you think of the first four episodes of the show? Ray, as our guest, do you want to kick us off? Oh yeah. Um, I just thought it was, it's very strong, a very strong show. The first four episodes, it has you invested into the stories. There are a lot of things happening, um, but in no way do you get lost in the characters as who's who because they're quite well-defined. I mean, if they're not well-known literature characters, uh, you do um, get to understand them quite quickly. Uh, Just, again, the the script writing, very very poetic in nature. Um, the, The the set designs, everything is done just so well. Um, and I think, John, you touched upon it before about I just – there's no holes barred with the violence or the language or anything like that. And that kind of always keeps you um, on edge because yeah. uh, it's a foreign time for us. You know, we, we don't live mm-hmm. that during that era. Um, so anything can happen. Like, you know, uh, things are a bit more barbaric then or a bit more primitive. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a very strong series, a very good start to to the season. Excellent, excellent, John. Overall, what's your thoughts? Well, if I was to give it an out of five, I would give it five Hannah's winks out of five. Um, yeah, I I just think this is gorgeously shot, mm-hmm. acted, uh, and written. Um, it's so rich in detail. Um, it's unrelenting um, and it's complex. There's no easy answer. There's there's no good versus evil uh, in that sense, even though it is at its heart good versus evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think there are great supporting characters in this, um, you know, that surround the wonderful central cast. I think Mr. Lyle Fenton and also um, Vincent Brand as well, the, the theatre um, owner, are just absolutely great around this central cast. And I, I think, um, you know, Eva Green for me just shines as Vanessa Ives in her performance. Um, it's, it's, I, I, the word I've used to describe it would be dangerous. Um, to be honest, she, she's just this danger. She's this unknown sort of something going on in amongst this group. And I like the, 
the the unlikely allies in a sense um whether they're allies on or not is a, is another matter but coming together um having their own affliction or curse um and how it treads this path on between modernity uh, and antiquity you know this age of the industrial revolution but we're looking back to Amun-Ra uh, Amunet um and to you know the these previous times with religion and superstition at the heart of it Mm -hmm. yet we have this modernity of science uh contrasting with that this kind of idea of more certainty in the belief of humans to control uh, their own destiny rather than ancient deities i think is really uh interesting so that 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 line of science and superstition walking hand in hand, as Victor says, I think, um, is, is a really great point. And I, I love the fact of the, the reality, you know, of these different shadow worlds of the, the illegal dogfight, the opium den, the seance and the, the lithographs, mm-hmm. um, and, and how that is in itself, um, the underbelly of Victorian society. And, and then you have this deeper, darker, um, more vampiric kind of shadow world as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, really, really good. Um, yeah. Can't wait to do part two, to be honest. <laughs> Excellent. So go on, Derek. What are your thoughts on the first four episodes? I really, really enjoyed this show. It's just a beautifully crafted series. One of the things that I find so interesting in a Penny Dreadful is it's a love letter, as I mentioned a couple of times, to something that is not really done anymore. So they are asking a massive amount of their audience here. They're asking for their audience to be in love with something that was massively niche over the previous hundred years from when they stopped being produced, from when they were replaced by horror movies and comic books. You know, they're asking for their audience to be in love and know the characters that they may not know, you know. Um, one of the things I find very interesting is a lot of the characters that are introduced from uh, Victor Frankenstein to Van Helsing and Dorian Gray, even Mina Murray or Murray Harker, uh, as we've spoken about a little bit uh, in our previous podcasts. Um, all of those characters are introduced as if you're supposed to know who they are. And then even if you do know who they are, the rug gets pulled out from under you, under you because they're not who they were in the past. They're not the people that you may know from their original creation. So that's asking a massive amount of, to, of an audience. And it feels like this show is so confident in that conviction and so confident in putting this on screen for their audience and making them work out. It's kind of almost what benefits it as a show that was on every week because you'd watch an episode and go, well, I wonder who that character is. And then you'd look it up and you'd find out details behind it. And it leaves you to do that research. It leaves you to do it. And when you do that research, as I say, then the rug gets pulled out from under you because it's not exactly the character you were thinking it was. Actually, this character is evil and they were good in the past. Actually, Mina's never going to be saved because she's a vampire. Uh, oh, that's, that's completely different from yeah. the damsel in distress yeah. that was in the original, uh, the original novels and the original movies, you know. So I really like what it's done in the show and how it flips everything on its head uh, and gives you those entry points so that you can kind of piece things together, but always keeps you on the edge of your seat throughout all four of these episodes. So really, really enjoyable show. I'm really excited to get to uh, part two. But that's enough for us for part one of our discussion about Penny Dreadful. Thanks so much to Ray for joining us for this episode. Glad to have you on board, mate. No worries. I I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, chatting 
this show with you guys is is uh it's been a dream so i've really been enjoying it excellent excellent you can hear more of ray over on into the night the moon night podcast <laughs> and on last sons of krypton superman podcast yeah that's right i um i should include that as well yeah so um obviously doing the into the night podcast um the moon night podcast sorry uh, at, at ITK Moon Knight, but also do a podcast, Last Sons of Krypton, lskpodcast.libsyn.com. Um, and mm-hmm. LSK Podcast is our handle on Twitter. And, uh, you can just search that in Facebook as well. Uh, everything to do with Superman. My co-host Connor is a, is an avid fan. I am a newbie, although I am quickly learning. <laughs> so it's a journey mm-hmm. for me. <laughs> uh, Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> And he's been revealing a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that you may not have known about Superman, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and a lot of uh, tearing down a lot of, I guess, stereotypes uh, of mm. of him. That, um, yeah, I always bring up the burning buildings. I know Connor will hate me <laughs> about mentioning it, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's anyway. Give it a listen, even if you are a fan of Superman or you want to know about the character more than the Christopher mm-hmm. Reeve movie. Check it out, but also check out Moon Knight as well. He's he's an awesome, awesome character, and he's coming to the mm-hmm. TV screens very, very soon. Excellent. Again, thanks so much for joining us, Ray. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, dear listeners, you can go over to tvpodcastindustries.com, click any of the subscribe buttons to any of our uh, podcasts. We've covered many many series over time uh, right now we're covering star trek picard at the yes. moment uh, really enjoying that about halfway through that series and as we mentioned before we will in the future be covering penny dreadful city of angels which is released on april 24th 2020 we'll be covering that on tv podcast industry so make sure that you stay subscribed to this podcast because you'll get all of our discussions about penny dreadful and all of our discussions about star trek picard all leading up to penny dreadful city of angels Yes, absolutely. Yeah, great to have you on, Ray. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure um, chatting with you. Uh, for sure, it's it's great to have uh, the third voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to get these episodes early, as I mentioned earlier on, you can support us over on patreon.com slash TV podcast industries. Uh, any amount of donation there gets these episodes early. But another way to show a bit of love for the podcast, make sure you share the episodes on any of your social media channels. Yeah, well, I think that wraps everything up, guys. Mm. So we'll be back for part two. Um, yeah, as always, uh, fellow Penny faithful, uh, we will be back soon. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Just remember, keep watching, keep listening, and importantly, keep screaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Catch up. Bye. Bye. Bye.